Chapters 42 and 43 of History of Rome from the Earliest Times down to 476 A.D. by Robert F. Pennell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 42 Invasions and Distribution of the Barbarians The sieges and captures of Rome by the barbarians we present in a separate chapter instead of in the narrative of the emperors, because by this plan a better idea of the operations can be given, and especially because we can thus obtain a clearer and more comprehensive conception of the rise of the nations, which, tearing in pieces the Roman Empire, have made up modern Europe. The Huns, who originated the movement which overthrew the Western Empire, came, it is supposed, from the eastern part of Asia. As they moved westward, their march was irresistible. In 395 they met and defeated the Goths, a powerful tribe that lived to the north of the Danube, and who were ruled by a king named Hermanric. The Gothic nation consisted of two branches, the Ostrogoths, Eastern Goths, and the Visigoths, Western Goths. Of these, the Ostrogoths were the more powerful, but on the approach of the Huns they were obliged to submit. The Huns moved on and found but little trouble in overrunning the country of the Visigoths, who were so terrified by the hideous appearance and wild shouts of the Huns that they fled to the Danube, and besought the Romans to allow them to cross the river and take refuge in their territory. The favor was granted, but the refugees were treated with indignity and compelled to undergo every privation. Subsequently, a remnant of the Ostrogoths arrived at the Danube, also desiring to cross. To them, permission was refused, but they seized shipping and crossed, despite the prohibition of the Romans. They found the condition of their brethren, the Visigoths, so sad that they united with them in open revolt, defeated a Roman army sent against them, and ravaged Thrace. The emperor Valens took the field in person and was defeated. 378. The Goths then moved southward and westward into Greece, everywhere pillaging the country. When Theodosius became emperor, he acted cautiously, fortifying strong points from which to watch the enemy and select a favorable moment for an attack. At length, he surprised their camp and gained a complete victory. The Goths were taken into the service of the empire, and the first chapter of the barbarian invasion of the empire was brought to a close. We now meet two of the great names connected with the fall of Rome, Alaric and Stilicho. Theodosius was succeeded by Arcadius, and before the end of the year the Goths broke into open revolt under their leader, Alaric. Athens was compelled to pay a ransom, Corinth, 
Argos, and Sparta were taken and plundered. No place was strong enough to offer effectual resistance. At this juncture, Stilicho, general of the Western Empire, hastened to the scene and succeeded in surrounding the Goths, but Alaric burst through his lines and escaped. He then made peace with Constantinople, and the office of Master General of Illyricum was bestowed upon him. How sincere the barbarian was in his offers of peace may be seen from the fact that in two years he invaded Italy. 400. Honorius, who was then Emperor of the West, was a man so weak that even the genius of Stilicho could not save him. No sooner did he hear of the approach of Alaric than he hastened to a place of safety for himself, leaving Stilicho to defend Rome. Troops were called from Britain, Gaul, and the other provinces far and near, leaving their places vacant and defenseless. Honorius, who had attempted to escape to Gaul, was surprised by Alaric, and taking refuge in the fortified town of Asta, was there besieged until the arrival of the brave Stilicho, who attacked the besiegers, and after a bloody fight utterly routed them. In his retreat, Alaric attempted to attack Verona, but he was again defeated and escaped only by the fleetness of his horse. Honorius returned home, 404, and enjoyed a triumph. Rome had scarcely time to congratulate herself upon her escape from the Goths when she was threatened by a new enemy. The Huns, pushing westward, had dislodged the northern tribes of Germany who dwelt on the Baltic. These were the Alans, Suaves, Vandals, and Burgundians. Under the leadership of Radagaisus, these tribes invaded Italy with about 200,000 men. They were met near Florence by Stilicho and totally defeated. 406. Radagaisus himself was killed. The survivors turned backward, burst into Gaul, ravaged the lower portion of the country, and finally separated. One portion, the Burgundians, remained on the frontier, and from their descendants comes the name of Burgundy. The Alans, Suaves, and Vandals pushed on into Spain, where they established kingdoms. The Alans occupied the country at the foot of the Pyrenees, but were soon after subdued by the Visigoths. The Suaves settled in the northwest of Spain, but met the same fate as the Alans. The Vandals occupied the southern part, and from there crossed over to Africa, where they maintained themselves for nearly a century, and at one time were powerful enough, as we shall see, to capture Rome itself. Rome was now for a time delivered from her enemies, and the emperor, no longer needing Stilicho, was easily persuaded that he was plotting for the throne. He was put to death with many of his friends. With Stilicho, Rome fell. 
scarcely two months after his death, Alaric again appeared before Rome. He sought to starve the city into submission. Famine and pestilence raged within its walls. Finally, peace was purchased by a large ransom, and Alaric withdrew, but soon returned. The city was betrayed, and after a lapse of eight centuries, became the second time a prey to the barbarians. August 24, 410. The city was plundered for five days, and then Alaric withdrew to ravage the surrounding country. But the days of this great leader were almost spent. Before the end of the year he died, and shortly after his army marched into France, where they established a kingdom reaching from the law and the run to the Straits of Gibraltar. The Germans, under their king, Clodion, prompted by the example of the Burgundians and Visigoths, began, about 425, a series of attempts to enlarge their boundaries. They succeeded in establishing themselves firmly in all the country, from the Rhine to the Somme, and under the name of Franks, founded the present French nation in France, 447. Clodion left two sons, who quarreled over the succession. The elder appealed to the Huns for support, the younger to Rome. The Huns at this time were ruled by Attila, the scourge of God. The portrait of this monster is thus painted. His features bore the mark of his eastern origin. He had a large head, a swarthy complexion, small, deep-seated eyes, a flat nose, a few hairs in the place of a beard, broad shoulders, and a short, square body of nervous strength, though disproportioned form. This man wielded at will, it is said, an army of over half a million troops. At the time he received from the son of Clodion the invitation to interfere in the affairs of Gaul, Attila was already contemplating an invasion of both the western and eastern empires. But the prospect of an ally in Gaul, with an opportunity of afterwards attacking Italy from the west, was too favorable to be neglected. A march of six hundred miles brought the Huns to the Rhine. Crossing this, they continued their progress, sacking and burning whatever cities lay in their route. The Visigoths, under Theodoric, joining the Romans under Aetius, met the Huns near Orléans. Attila retreated towards Cologne, where in 451 was fought a great battle which saved the civilization of Western Europe. Attila began the attack. He was bravely met by the Romans, and a charge of the Visigoths completed the discomfiture of the savages. Aetius did not push his victory, but allowed the Huns to retreat in the direction of Italy. The scourge first attacked, captured, and razed to the ground Aquileia. He then scoured the whole country, sparing only those preserved their lives by the surrender of their wealth. It was to this invasion 
that Venice owed its rise. The inhabitants, who fled from the approach of the Huns, found on the islands in the lagoons at the head of the Adriatic a harbor of safety. Attila died shortly after, 453, from the bursting of a blood vessel, and with his death the empire of the Huns ceased to exist. The Vandals, we have seen, had established themselves in Africa. They were now ruled by Genseric. Carthage was their headquarters, and they were continually ravaging the coasts of the Mediterranean with their fleets. Maximus, emperor of Rome, 455, had forcibly married Eudoxia, the widow of the previous emperor Valentinian, whom he had killed. She, in revenge, sent to Genseric a secret message to attack Rome. He at once set sail for the mouth of the Tiber. The capital was delivered into his hands on his promise to spare the property of the church, June 455, and for fourteen days the Vandals ravaged it at pleasure. Genseric then left Rome, taking with him Eudoxia. This was the last sack of the city by barbarians, but twenty-one years elapsed before the Roman Empire came to an end. 476. End of chapter 42. Chapter 43. Roman Literature. Plautus, 254 to 184. Plautus, the comic poet, was one of the earliest of Roman writers, born at Sarcina in Umbria, of free parentage. He at first worked on the stage at Rome, but lost his savings in speculation. Then for some time he worked in a treadmill, but finally gained a living by translating Greek comedies into Latin. Twenty of his plays have come down to us. They are lively, graphic, and full of fun, depicting a mixture of Greek and Roman life. Terence, 195 to 159. Terence was a native of Carthage. He was brought to Rome at an early age as a slave of the senator Terentius, by whom he was educated and liberated. Six of his comedies are preserved. Like the plays of Plautus, they are free translations from the Greek and of the same general character. Ennius, 139 through 69. Quintus Ennius, a native of Rudiae, was taken to Rome by Cato the Younger. Here he supported himself by teaching Greek. His epic poem, The Annals, relates the traditional Roman history from the arrival of Aeneas to the poet's own day. Cicero, 106 through 43. Marcus Tullius Cicero, a native of Arpinum, ranks as the first prose writer in Roman literature. As an orator, Cicero had a very happy natural talent. The extreme versatility of his mind, his lively imagination, his great sensitiveness, 
his inexhaustible richness of expression, which was never at a loss for a word or tone to suit any circumstances or mood, his felicitous memory, his splendid voice and impressive figure, all contributed to render him a powerful speaker. He himself left nothing undone to attain perfection. Not until he had spent a long time in laborious study and preparation did he make his debut as an orator, nor did he ever rest and think himself perfect, but always working, made the most careful preparation for every case. Each success was to him only a step to another still higher achievement, and by continual meditation and study he kept himself fully equipped for his task. Hence he succeeded, as is universally admitted, in gaining a place beside Demosthenes, or at all events second only to him. There are extant fifty-seven orations of Cicero, and fragments of twenty more. His famous Philippics against Antony caused his proscription by the second triumvirate, and his murder near his villa at Formiae, in December 43. His chief writings on rhetoric were De Orator, Brutus de Claris Oratoribus, and Orator ad M. Brutum. Cicero was a lover of philosophy, and his writings on the subject were numerous. Those most read are De Senectute, De Amicitia, and De Officius. Eight hundred and sixty-four of Cicero's letters are extant, and they furnish an inexhaustible treasure of contemporaneous history. Caesar, one hundred through forty-four. Of Caesar's literary works, the most important are his Commentarii, containing the history of the first seven years of the Gallic War, and the history of the civil strife down to the Alexandrine War. The account of his last year in Gaul was written probably by Aulus Hirtius. That of the Alexandrine, African, and Spanish wars by some unknown hand. As an orator, Caesar ranks next to Cicero. Nepos, 94-24 Cornelius Nepos, a native of northern Italy, was a friend of both Cicero and Atticus. He was a prolific writer, but only his De Viris Illustribus is preserved. It shows neither historical accuracy nor good style. Lucretius, 98-55 through 55. Titus Lucretius Carus has left a didactic poem, De Rerum Natura. The tone of the work is sad, and in many places bitter. Catullus, 87-47 through 47. Gaius Valerius Catullus of Verona is the greatest lyric poet of Roman literature. One hundred and sixteen of his poems are extant. Virgil, seventy through nineteen. 
the great epic Roman poet was Virgil. His Aeneas, in twelve books, gives an account of the wanderings and adventures of Aeneas and his struggles to found a city in Italy. The poem was not revised when Virgil died, and it was published contrary to his wishes. Besides the Aeneas, Virgil wrote the Bucolica, ten eclogues imitated and partially translated from the Greek poet Theocritus. The Georgica, a poem of four books on agriculture and its different branches, is considered his most finished work and the most perfect production of Roman art poetry. Horace, 65 through 8. Quintus Horatius Flaccus left four books of odes, one of epodes, two of satires, two of epistles, and the Ars Poetica. Tibullus, 54 through 29. Albius Tibullus, an elegiac poet, celebrated in exquisitely fine poems the beauty and cruelty of his mistresses. Propertius, 49 through 15. Sextus Propertius, a native of Umbria, was also an elegiac poet and wrote mostly on love. Ovid, 43 B.C. through 18 A.D. Publius Ovidius Nasso left three books of Amores, one of Eroides, the Ars Amatoria, Remedia Amoris, the Metamorphoses, fifteen books, the Tristia, and the Fasti. Livy, 59 B.C. through 17 A.D. Titus Livius left a history of Rome, of which thirty-five books have been preserved. Phaedrus Phaedrus, a writer of fables, flourished in the reign of Tiberius, 14 through 37. He was originally a slave. His fables are 97 in number and are written in iambic verse. Seneca, 8 B.C. through 65 A.D. For an account of this writer, see the chapter on the Emperor Nero. Curtius, Quintus Curtius Rufus, was a historian who lived in the reign of Claudius, 50 A.D. He wrote a history of the exploits of Alexander the Great. Persius, 34-62. Persius, a poet of the reign of Nero, was a native of Volateri. He wrote six satires, which are obscure and hard to understand. Lucan, 39-65. Lucan, a nephew of Seneca, wrote an epic poem, not finished, called Pharsalia, upon the civil war between Caesar and and Pompey. Pliny the Elder, 23-79. through 79. Gaius Plinius Secundus of northern Italy was a great scholar in history, grammar, rhetoric, and natural science. His work on natural history has come down to us. Stadius, 
martial, quintilian, juvenile. Stadius, 45-96, through 96, a native of Naples, had considerable poetical talent. He wrote the Thebaid, the Achilles, unfinished, and the Sylvie. Martial, 42-102, through 102, wrote sharp and witty epigrams, of which fifteen books are extant. He was a native of Spain. Quintilian, 35-95, through 95, was also a native of Spain. He was a teacher of eloquence for many years in Rome. His work, On the Training of an Orator, is preserved. Juvenal, 47-130, through 130, of Aquinum, was a great satirist who described and attacked bitterly the vices of Roman society. Sixteen of his satires are still in existence. Tacitus, 54 through 119. Cornelius Tacitus was the great historian of his age. His birthplace is unknown. His writings are interesting and of a high tone, but often tinged with prejudice and hence unfair. He wrote, 1. A Dialogue on Orators. 2. A Biography of His Father-in-Law Agricola. 3. A Description of the Habits of the People of Germany. 4. A History of the Reigns of Galba, Otho, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. Historiae. 5. Annalus a narrative of the events of the reigns of Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Pliny the Younger, 62-113. through 113. Pliny the Younger was the adopted son of Pliny the Elder. He was a voluminous correspondent. We have nine books of his letters, relating to a large number of subjects, and presenting vivid pictures of the times in which he lived. Their diction is fluent and smooth. End of chapter 43 End of section 17